0: John chapter 19 verses 23 to 27. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This is the word of the Lord. All right, um, so yeah, as you guys know, we have a uh, guest speaker today and please uh, welcome back Reverend uh, Gary Rusma. Uh You guys know him from before, he came a couple times. So uh, before he speaks, it is my joy to share a little bio about him. Uh, he is an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church and currently serving as chaplain in the Port of Vancouver uh, with the CRC Ministry uh, to Seafarers and in partnership with Anglican mission to seafarers. Uh, this ministry involves uh, visiting cargo ships in port and serving in the ministry centers in Vancouver and at uh, uh, Roberts Bank. I believe he is all, He also calls uh, the tapestry Church uh, Richmond home. Um, mission has been the primary focus for most of Gary's ministry life, especially, uh, especially leadership training. Uh, previously, he and his wife Jennifer with their three children uh, worked with OMF International Uh, for 10 years in East Malaysia, with a focus on training local pastors for ministry. And he spent another seven years working as a regional director with OMF in BC. Uh, So please give a warm LLC virtual welcome uh, to him. Uh, So thank you, uh, Reverend Gary.
1: Well, thank you. Um, It's good to be here with you and uh, to be with you again. have the sense that when Pastor Doug invited me to be with you, we both had no idea. This was probably five or six months ago. I can't remember that we'd still be meeting in this kind of context, but here here we are. Um, A lot of you maybe, or I don't know how many, some of you may remember that I was more connected with OMF in the past, but for the past three and a half, almost four years, I've been serving in the Port of Vancouver here, Um, and I wanted to share a little bit about that uh, ministry with you. So if the slides, if you could put up the first slide uh, of uh, the work. Um, and I've got a picture, should be coming up of the center where, uh, where I'm serving. Yeah, there we go. There's the Flying Angel Seafarers Club. Uh, that is our downtown center. We have another out at Roberts Bank near Tsawasin. Um, and this is a place where outside of COVID season more, we, we welcome seafarers to come and get off their ships. We go to the ships to meet them, but then we also welcome them to the centers as a little bit of a home away from home. Next slide. During COVID, of course, that has been limited. For a while it was uh, out of the question altogether, uh, but we still go on ships. And uh, what we've been doing more often now is, is we meet them you can see we wear masks um, i bring the brown paper bag there has some snacks uh, that we bring a little welcome care package that we bring on every ship and also we get cobb's bread so when we have it uh, the, in the other plastic bag there is some bread that we bring on board and we just connect with them and see how they're doing um, next slide and uh, we do we can't do services in in anymore right now at least on board but we do try to to check up and, and see how they're doing. And, and occasionally now we do have them coming into the center. Here's a group of some Indonesians who came up. Just this past week, uh, though we had, it was interesting, we had a group of, of it was an all uh, Myanmar, all Burmese crew. And they arrived and when they came into, this is at the Roberts Bank Center, and they had not, none of them had been off the ship in seven months. And finally they had this opportunity to come ashore and go to the uh, seafarer center. And these guys, I tell you, they went crazy because they hadn't been off and they nearly bought the entire store out. We, we have goods and snacks and souvenirs and everything. And we had to go restock because they were so ready to get a break and to get some snacks and to just get off that ship for a while. So it was really good to see them get that break. Um, so next slide. Um, I wanted to just also, uh, the week before last, towards the end of last weekend, um, uh, I met this sailor, Renato, from the Philippines, and uh, he had contacted us before he even arrived by email saying, I've got medical issues, and they're not letting me off the ship even for medical reasons. Um, Can you help me in any way? And so we got in touch with the union, the International Transport Workers Federation, or ITF, and we all came on board and, and just checked on him. Um, the, the ship was very reluctant because they're all worried about COVID, of course, to let him off. But finally, we were able to persuade uh, the, the captain and the, the CEO of the company, actually, to let him uh, go ashore and at least see a doctor. Um, he had a really bad rash and infection on his legs and went up his back. It was just really, you can see the next picture Um, You'll see his leg and um, we brought him in and uh, they he was immediately brought to emerge and uh, put on IV antibiotics and ended up spending a few days at the hospital Uh, next picture because I don't want to gross you out too much. Uh, But, uh, and uh, so he was finally he was deemed unfit to continue service so uh, he was put in a hotel his ship has since sailed. Uh, but that's just a sort of an example of some of the ways we do get involved in seafarers' lives just to help them. So I met with him a couple times um, in the hot hotel, uh, again, just this past Friday. And he's probably boarding his plane right now to return to the Philippines. So he was excited for that and, uh, and was able to, to get back. He's got a long flight ahead of him, but uh, it was great to be able to pray with him and encourage him and to serve. So that's a little bit about what we're doing uh, in the Port of Vancouver. And so, you know, pray for the seafarers, pray for the ministry that's happening down there. Uh, Next slide. Last slide, I think. Yeah, so this is my contact. If you ever want to learn more, if you want to get involved in any way, once we get through COVID, uh, we'd love to have uh, volunteers come and help with uh, uh, driving seafarers around, you know, bringing them to the to the uh, center uh, and um, just helping out sometimes down at the center volunteering in the afternoons and evenings. Uh, We'd love to have you get involved and we get a lot of Chinese so if you speak Mandarin particularly, uh, boy we could really use the help in that area. So anyway that's my contact you can learn more especially at the Facebook page Ministry to Seafarers Vancouver or do check out Instagram because I do post periodically same uh, same name ministry to seafarers, Vancouver. So thanks for uh, listening and for uh, letting me uh, share about that. And uh, but let's turn to the service to the the, uh, the sermon. And I picked this text. Well, I'll get into it in a little bit, um, in a bit. Um, but uh, uh, this text to uh, as a text for for us to focus on today, um, because it intrigued me. And so let's bow in prayer before we uh, launch into the sermon father in heaven thank you for your word thank you for the way it speaks into our hearts and lives and thank you for the word made flesh in jesus christ and that we can focus our lives on his reality in the past historically and in the present in our lives and look to him for the future and so guide our thoughts Speak through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, if you could go to the next slide. Uh, actually, the next slide, the picture. Uh, there. Um, bunch of shoes. Uh, this actually is a, uh, an art display. It's called Shoes on the Danube Bank. It's in Budapest, Hungary. Uh, It's on the banks of the uh, Danube River and there are, apparently, this is just some of them, there are 60 pairs of shoes. They're done in bronze or iron, I'm not sure which it is, I read both, Um, but they're right along the bank of the Danube River there. Now the reason they're there is to memorialize a, a tragic time in the history right near the end of World War II Uh, collaborate Nazi collaborators from Hungary, slaughtered about 3500 people right in this place. And what they would do is bring them there, make them take their shoes off. And then they would shoot them and they would fall into the river, Uh, close to a 1000 of those were Jews, as well as others who were deemed friend friendly to the, the Jewish people and to the, the opposition. It was a horrible act, and they memorialize this, though, curiously by putting these pairs of shoes. There's just 60 pairs to represent the full uh, 3,500 or so people that were killed, but it's this using a piece of clothing to memorialize the deaths that happened uh, on that, at that place and at that time, and I thought that was a powerful way of, of speaking, interesting that we can use clothing as a way to memorialize something important. And in our text today, of course, we pick it up where Jesus' clothes are remembered and the way they were dealt with. And and I find it really intriguing that this story of the Jesus' clothes, just that minor incident in many ways, but it's in all four gospel accounts. They all deal with this. The others, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they deal with it in a much shorter way. They just say they divided his, they cast lots for his clothes. Um, clearly, they're just, they, they just mention it, but they still make a point of remembering it. John goes into more detail. He expands it by dealing with the four parts and then that seamless tunic. And so we want to look at that a little bit initially um, this morning. Now we know from the text that there were four soldiers because it talks about the four parts one for each soldier and so that they divided four parts of his clothing and we're not sure what they're referencing there uh, a lot of commentators feel it's his outer robe his sandals his belt and then his headscarf others think that they actually took his outer robe there were seams and they tore along the seams and divided it out uh, there's not Uh, unanimity on on what happened. Uh, But apparently, whatever it was, it was a common practice at crucifixions and and other kinds of executions, where the executioners were given the clothes. It was sort of like taking plunder in a war or in a battle. The point of the text here initially, and, and probably primarily, is that this act of dividing out his clothes, fulfilled scripture, right? Uh, Psalm 22, verse 18, you can look at it on your own, but basically there's a direct quote from that. And and I think all of the synoptics are making, all all of the gospel accounts are making this point that this was a fulfillment of scripture, whether they mentioned the text directly or not. But in John, he quotes from it um, and, and how this fulfilled that scripture. Now, I think it's you're, you're talking about doubt and faith and, and how do we deal with doubts. And one of the key ways that in the New Testament time and in the first century, that one of the key ways to, to convince believers, particularly the Jewish people, but others as well, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, was simply by looking at the way he fulfilled Scripture. And that over and over again, and, and if you look through all of the gospel accounts, this was done to fulfill, this happened to fulfill this scripture, and they'll quote from scripture or they'll just reference it, but over and over again, and the way that, that fulfillment of the prophecies, that fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures or of the Psalms or whatever it is, and at his death, of course, Psalm 22 is one of the primary uh, psalms that gets fulfilled. It, it just was evidence for the people that, Kate, hey, he really is who he says he is and who the, the scriptures now tell us that he is. Um, I was reading recently a testimony uh, of David Block. He's an astronomer in, uh, uh, out of South Africa. He's taught internationally and spoken. Uh, He's actually was, came from an Orthodox Jewish family and went through a time being an Orthodox Jew, but then, and his studies of mathematics and astronomy and and sciences uh, went to a time when he really felt distant from God and uh, was kind of wandering and wondering, is there any kind of personal relationship possible with this God? And eventually, what led him to faith and, as, and Christian faith was two things. One was the way, just looking at the cosmos and the way, the beauty, the visual and the, the, the mathematical beauty, as he sees it, of the way, the whole design of the cosmos. But then the fact that Jesus fulfilled Scripture over and over and over again, and that's what led him to, as a, a Jewish Jewish person, to this faith in Jesus as his own Messiah. Now, not all accept this. We had a friend recently, a Jewish friend, and and she just said outright, "We don't find, as Jews, we don't see any evidence in the New Testament that of fulfillment." of scripture and I think my jaw must have just dropped to the floor and I'm like, have you read the New Testament? But so it still requires God to open the eyes of people to be able to see that. But when it does, it is so, so convincing but not just for Jewish followers, for all of us that this is really uh, an an evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, By the way, I was looking, there was a study done recently, uh, just in terms of scripture generally. Um, And it was a study done by the American Bible Society along with uh, Harvard University's uh, Human Flourishing Program. And they did a study on happiness for people generally and how it compared with reading of scriptures. This is more not just the whole fulfillment thing, but just reading scripture uh, generally. And they did it at the beginning before COVID hit, and then they actually did it after COVID. So it's very interesting if you get a chance to look at the, all the, the various details in it. But what they found, generally speaking, was people, this is Americans, okay? So in the United States, Americans who report reading the Bible three or four times per year scored on a level a scale of one to 100, scored 42 not great, okay? So it's, you know, below 50. People who read the Bible monthly scored 59. People who read the Bible weekly scored 66. And people who read the Bible multiple times per week scored 75. Now, in fairness, people who never read the Bible Scored 54 about or about 54, so they actually scored more than those who hardly ever read it or a few times a year. Nonetheless, and again, remember your psychology: okay, correlation doesn't mean causation. Uh, so there's a correlation here. We don't know what's causing this, but we can't prove what's causing this by these studies. But still, it's interesting that the 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 correlation between scripture reading and just well-being happiness, general joy and and contentment in life. So this importance of scripture, but I wonder if there's not something, and others do too, there's not something more going on in this text than just fulfillment of scriptures. Is there something more going on with this four parts of his clothing and this seamless tunic? Remembering, uh, and I always do remember that Daryl Johnson, Pastor Daryl Johnson used, as, as often said, particularly in, the, in John's account of the gospel, the gospel according to John, there are no throwaway terms. There's no wasted words. Everything has meaning. So why does John make this point of emphasizing the four parts and the seamless tunic? Now there have been a number of sort of speculations about this. Uh, Ephraim the Syrian, back in the fourth century, an Eastern uh, theologian and hymn writer, he uh, speculated that the four parts represent the gospel going to the four corners of the earth. Not too many follow that, but there are some. Um, a number of uh, commentators, and and especially in the in in, in history have felt that this uh, seamless tunic, particularly, is a reference to Jesus as the high priest. Interestingly, in the first century, the the Jewish uh, historian, Josephus, so a contemporary of Jesus, he actually, in his antiquities, cites that the tunic, the same term that's used here, the tunic, of uh, the high priest was a seamless tunic. Now there's no reference to that in scripture, but it is intriguing that in the first century that was the understanding that the high priest wore a seamless tunic. Now, is this a representation then or or meant to to represent Jesus as high priest? Uh, I think that that could well possibly be The most common interpretation of this, and this is by many of the church fathers particularly, is that the seamless tunic represents the unity of Christ's church that is around his body. That it's we are a unity, and a lot of modern commentators don't buy that. Uh, We tend to be much more literal and, and not into the sort of metaphors. Uh, But as recently, we're we're kind of warming to the idea a little bit more now. And as recently as as Frederick Dale Bruner, very recent uh, great commentary that came out, he actually says, I'm warming to this idea that maybe it represents the the unity uh, of the church. So there are all these ideas. I'll tell you honestly why I got interested in this text. Um, I was reading through the book of Exodus recently in my regular reading through the scriptures every year, and I came to Exodus chapter 26, and in Exodus chapter 26, there's this uh, story of the, 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 the preparations or the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, which became, came before, of course, the temple, How do you build it? And and they're talking there in Exodus 26 about the curtains that go around and the the tent that goes over. And twice in Exodus 26, uh, the references made that they they built this and they put it all together, connected it, that the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle would be one. That it would be one, or the English standard version says that it would be a single whole. And I, as I was reading that, I was reminded of this text in John 19, that Jesus wore a, a single whole tunic around him. Is there some connection here with Jesus as representing the, the temple or the tabernacle? Of course, that comes up right in John chapter 1, verse 14, he, the word became flesh and dwelt and tabernacled, is the verb actually, among us. Or in John chapter 2, where Jesus clears out the temple and Who, who, you know? Why do you do this? Show us a sign, and they tell him. And and Jesus says, tear down this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And of course, they don't get it. But clearly, John reminds us, it's his body. Okay, the temple, the tabernacle. So is Jesus making some reference here to that? So a lot of ways that you can read this text. And I, I, again, I have to confess here, um, there's no linguistic connection that makes that connection it's more of a conceptual kind of thing and there are no commentators who who that i could find that i read who make that connection but for me that was a conceptually it makes sense whatever the case i think there's more going on here than just the fulfillment of scripture as important as that is and so that's the story uh, uh, that we've we've seen so far of of this uh you know dividing out of the clothes or casting lots for the clothes. Then comes the next story, and you may be going, well, what's the connection between those two? But the the grammar of the Greek actually makes it very clear that there is a connection between these two texts. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, look at the end of verse 24, just after it gives the quote from Psalm 22, verse 18, Uh, The NIV says, so this is what the soldiers did, and then it starts a new paragraph. But that's really not what's happening in the Greek text. Uh, The English Standard Version, again, gets it better because they translated it this way from the end of verse 24. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clovis and Mary Magdalene. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross. And then he lists these four women. So it makes the connection. Furthermore, notice that in the first story, there are four soldiers. And in the second story, there are four women. And again, in the first story, you have four parts of the clothing and the one seamless tunic and in the next story you have four women and one disciple whom jesus loved so there are a lot of little connections between these two Uh, now the roman catholic church makes some interesting interpretations here because they say notice then it it goes on from this uh the four women being listed to the focus on the mother of Jesus and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we, the consensus is that was, that's a reference to John. But um, when they say when, why would Jesus hand his mother, Mary, over to John, the disciple, instead of his brothers, his own family, his own siblings? And of course for them, that's. Uh, a reference to that's evidence that she actually, because they talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary, that actually if he didn't have any full blood brothers. They were either half brothers through another woman or uh, cousins or something like that. I, I don't think that's true, but that's, that's, this is one of the verses that they use to, to prove that or to give evidence of that. Furthermore, some Catholic commentators, a fair number, not all, Actually, if you read the text, you notice that it says in verse uh, 26, Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing there. and He said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. We tend to read that and say, he's giving her to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so that he will take care of her. But they read it, some of them, at least some Catholic theologians read it more as He's giving John to Mary. Mary is the one taking care of John because Mary, of course, the prominence of Mary within Catholicism. I don't buy that, but it is an interesting interpretation. I don't buy it mainly because of the last part uh, of verse 27. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I think it's fairly clear scripturally that he's looking after Mary rather than uh, the other way around. Um, but is there, again, is there something more going on in this text than just him looking after his mother? Um, and I think it's, I think there's good evidence that there is, um, it's interesting in this text and, and in the gospel, of, according to John, Jesus' mother is never named, Mary, as her name, is never in the gospel. It's other women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the wife of Clopas, but Jesus' mother is always only referred to, and she's only referred to like four times in John, actually very sparingly, but she's always simply the mother of Jesus. Likewise, John, the apostle, is never named in his own gospel. He's always simply the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, a lot of uh, commentators and theologians, and I tend to agree, see that in in doing that, not only, well, essentially what Jesus is doing is, there's a way, or John is doing, is making them almost representative of the church and of true disciples. Not that they don't refer to the others clearly as well, to the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and to John, the apostle, but also that they're sort of, in a sense, representing us. And I say that partly because if you go to the the next slide uh, in Revelation, the verse from Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Next slide. This is that story in Revelation, if you remember, again, written by John, um, the story of the the child that was born to this woman, and if you remember at the beginning of this chapter, it begins with a a woman gave birth to the male child. It's clearly a reference to to Jesus, and of course, the woman would then be uh, Mary, and then the, the, the dragon... Wants the the devil wants to kill this child, but he's taken up into heaven, and there's a battle in heaven, and the dragon is cast down to earth. Woe to the earth, because then he's coming back to verse 13. Sorry, go back. I haven't read it yet. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Next slide. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Now it's clear there, right? The the woman represents more than just Mary. This this woman is, is the church. And I sense, and others do as well, that there's more going on here in the sense that Mary, or the mother of Jesus, Represents the church and the disciple whom Jesus loved represents a true disciple, but also I think the apostolic testimony that cares for the church that that we in which we find our our hope, our faith, our trust. We can place it in it. It keeps us secure in in our faith. So I think there's again more going on there. Um, Also, I think it's really incredibly touching that Jesus, in the midst of the agony of the cross, does make that effort and has that love and concern to look after his own mother. I think that's a very powerful thing that he would remember. You know, you think of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, and he, he still fulfills that. Or think of, next slide, uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, where Paul writes, next slide, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And this is always a very important thing, too, for us as, as believers, that the family matters, and Jesus exemplifies that in such a powerful way. And so we have at the foot of the cross these two contrasting groups, right? We have the soldiers and we have the women and this disciple. What I find particularly striking is that these soldiers are at the foot of the cross. They're playing games with their dice or whatever. They're casting lots. They are at the foot of the cross, playing a game, and have no idea what's going on just feet above their heads. Frederick Dale Bruner, again, the commentator, puts it this way, quote, while they casually throw their dice, do they have any idea that just a few feet above their heads, the central event in world history is occurring? Close quote. And they don't. They have absolutely no idea. At least that's the sense we get. Which is true of so many in the world till today, right? That they just have no idea. And we just play games. By contrast, then you have this group of particularly the women, and of course the disciple whom Jesus loved, Not those who are in power, whether Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities, but Jesus' true followers, the minority at that time. Other people undoubtedly are around who don't get it as well. But they are the ones who honor and mourn. They don't have the full story yet. That's coming. Jesus' suffering and his death and they receive his loving concern and care even in his suffering and death. You know, the world, I think, is still like this. So many people just play games and don't get it. That Jesus is the absolute pivot, the absolute central center of our history, and he's the complete focus, and we're oblivious, so many people oblivious to that reality, just can't see it. I have a confession to make. Uh, Right now, I don't know if you are sports fans, if you're basketball fans, but I like my basketball this true confession. I was born and raised in the United States. I've lived out of it longer than I ever lived in it, but I still, it's in my blood. And so right now is March madness. NCAA college basketball. It was canceled last year. I was devastated this year. It's on Will Gonzaga go all the way undefeated? Uh, you know, I'm watching, uh, there's a game going on right now, by the way, if you excuse. Oh, I did it again. You know, I, I I love watching this stuff. Well, on Friday night, a couple of our sons were over and we were watching the game. And my, I watched part of the game just a little bit. And and my sons, especially one of them, but they weren't raised on this like I was. So it's not in their blood. And so we're watching this game. and And of course you've got, you know, the seriousness of it and the statistics coming up. And uh, as they always joke, the men in suits and they're getting all ro- worked up over this. And my one son turned and he said, have they forgotten that this is just a game? And it struck me, I thought, yeah, we, we forget that it's just a game so often. I, there's nothing wrong with games actually I think it's fun I I think it's really enjoyable and 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 you know whether it's sports or whether it's throwing the dice in in a board game or you know just whatever we're involved in there's nothing wrong per se with playing games but it's when we get it backwards that the games become the real focus and the the serious part of life and God gets hardly a mention, if at all. Maybe he gets an hour on Sunday morning. For most people, not even that. And then we get things mixed up. And we forget that, again, Jesus is the center, friends. And my prayer, as hard as it is to do this, so even over Zoom and over the computer, is that you would be reminded again, this one who fulfilled scripture over and over again is, our center of our lives, of history, and he's the culmination of it all as well. And may that be an encouragement and and a faith-building part of your lives as well. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who suffered and died as the center and the focus of history. And I pray that you would draw us away from simply playing games and focusing on that and draw the others as well and bring our focus back to the center and to the final culmination of history. In Jesus, your son, Lord Jesus, draw us and draw this world to you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.